Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello and welcome to the Open Era Podcast. My name is Devang Desai and I'm joined as always by Mr. Simon Bushel. Simon, the weather is turning. How are you doing out in Vancouver? I hear you're you're hitting the tennis ball with our friend Luke. Yep, out uh, getting some getting some tennis in for the back end of February. I feel pretty good about that. It's not often in Canada you can say that you're hitting tennis balls in February, so I'm pretty pleased that we got a good two-hour hit yesterday. So reports have emerged, and my my sources are um, immaculate, so don't worry about corroboration here, but my sources have told me that your serve was on a level that had passersby stop and watch you and um, kind of comment on how good it was, was looking. Is that true? And can you kind of explain what happened there? I think you might want to get a second source on this, Devang. It's the first thing <laughs> they teach you when you're at the at any national broadcaster. You need to have two sources. I answered the question. I, frankly, frankly, you're ducking the question. So I would like you to answer the answer, please. I think the person who gave you that information left out the part where as soon as this passerby stopped to compliment me on my serve, I dumped both a first serve in the net and then sent a second serve into the next court. So <laughs> it wasn't exactly the most, it, the pressure got to me. I got a bit too Alexander Zverev in my serve motion. And you never want to do that because it usually means that things have gone off the rails and you've lost. Uh, fun and games to start. More fun and games, Simon. Again from Luke, our Brad Gilbert nicknames. Mine would be to science fiction. Yours cannot be Simon Says because Jill Simon took it but it's going to be Bush League. I'm okay with mine. Do you like Bush League? I think there's an element of uh, it being a good thing. I must admit, so I grew up in in Britain. Bush League in North America seems to have a a very different connotation, though, doesn't it? It seems to illustrate that I'm uh, somewhat incompetent at what I do. Or maybe it's a term in endearment. I'm not sure. Don't get me wrong; it's an insult, and it, and it's a, it's a heartfelt it's a heartfelt jab. But you're right. Um, what, wait, what does it what does it mean in in the UK? Does it mean something else? Because it does mean like below below good in North America. I, that's not for airing on this podcast. I'm afraid, Devang. It's uh, not not suitable for work content. Also, finally, a man was hospitalized after watching 72 hours of Roger Federer clips on YouTube. I don't, I'm not quite sure if this story is true, and I hope this person yeah. is okay, but... Is this story true? <laughs> I saw this floating around as well. And- this, is on, this is on Reddit, I believe, so once again... <laughs> so, no. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> we're, we're trying to further fact-based information passing, so 
possibly quoting this was bad, but it led me to think, what what like what is the most tennis content you've assumed or sorry consumed, Simon, during your times watching highlights? Like, can you can you put a number to maybe in a row? watching something <laughs> was it 72 to 72 hours long that's the question uh no it wasn't that long i feel like at some point i must have watched some people have done the lord's work in putting together compilations of one-handed backhand winners down the line that last for a solid hour and a half and i think i <laughs> yeah. must have sat there yeah. i feel like actually thinking about it someone did a compilation of i think the 100 or 250 best shots that roger Federer has hit in his career and i think i remember sitting and watching all of it I think I was listening to a podcast at the time and it just sort of like one of those where you just lose your mind and you just get taken down a, a lovely road for a second. <laughs> it's like the the magic eye poster where you're supposed to look off into the distance and it comes into focus like Federer's greatness. Just have it on in the background. I think something similar like best shots or biggest moments and then you get the recommended videos. And in this case... The YouTube algorithm is not poisoning our minds with fake news. It's just sending us into more tennis highlights. But these YouTube warm rolls sometimes lead different places. Someone said yeah. it's poisoning our mind. It's true. It's true. And you go for one Pete Sampras highlight pack to some conspiracy theory about how 9-11 didn't happen. It's a couple of videos away. And that's the beauty of the internet. As we quickly move away from that, the Australian Open, of course, is over, Simon. That was smooth, right? I smoothly got away from that. The Australian Open is over, but, of course, tennis con- continues all over the world, including in Australia, and that's where we'll start. Iga Sviantec was good at the Australian Open, but not up to the level we saw at the French Open, where she shocked many in the tennis world. But, Simon, this past week in Adelaide, she took home her second title, beating Belinda Bencic in the final handily. I thought it was interesting, Bush, just to consider. I think Belinda Benchage, you could argue, was kind of in Sviantec's shoes not long ago. Benchage is only 23 years old, but I think it's fair to say things haven't panned out exactly for her. But for Iga, I think we think the sky's the limit, and this week has only confirmed that. Right. So, uh, to our beloved Open Era listeners, uh, you know how I, I love you so much, but I've been on Devang for a long time about his love of Belinda Benchage. So, she made. The final here, and congratulations to her, but just to put it into some context of the curse that Mr. Desai put on Belinda Bencic, this was the first final that Bencic made since Moscow in 2019. Good Lord. What have you done to this poor woman, Devang? It's been bleak. There's there's no uh, there's no getting around it. It's been bleak. Uh, you look at the timeline of her career. She's newcomer of the year. She makes the, the quarterfinals of the US Open, but it's doesn't really pan out in terms of quickly ascending to the top. A couple years ago, though, we saw her make the semifinals at the U.S. Open. But I, I think the the con- or like the comparison kind of ends at how young Benchich was when she broke onto the scene, Simon. Because in terms of how they play, they're pretty different. And I think Ishviontek at 19 has already won a slam. It's her second tournament. I think she's shown us more already than BB has. But I'm curious what you think... Sviantec has already right now that's made her this formidable on not just a hard court, but also a clay court. Because to me, I think she kind of plays so similar on both courts that you're it's like kind of Novak style where you're sliding everywhere and, and basically treating every surface like it's one. Yeah, and I think just her ability to problem solve on the court is truly exceptional. If you look at the stats in this match, she 
completely crushed Benchich in the final. It wasn't even close, actually. It was kind of embarrassing how far apart they were from each other, considering that this was the fifth seed against the second seed. So uh, everyone points out the 22 winners to six unforced errors point. And I think that is, I think that's probably the biggest thing that I take away from watching Sviantec play, which is that she hits with such margin for error, and yet she's hitting so big at the same time. This is not someone who is just defensively playing behind the baseline and, and working angles and all that sort of side of things. No, she's standing on the baseline and she's hitting aggressively and she's taking that same form that took her to her first Grand Slam title in Roland Garros into the hard courts. And I said last week when we were doing a, re- a summarization of what happened at the Australian Open, that I really didn't think that it was going to take her too long to make that transition to a hard court and to navigate it. I didn't think it was going to be this quick, though, to go immediately to win her first title on a hard court. Well, Keith, I mean, it's it's obviously impressive, and I think she did a lot of press, uh, obviously following the French Open, but also once the calendar shifted to 2021, seeing a lot more media stuff, and I'm, I'm just always impressed every time I hear her, Simon, like the way she carries herself. Obviously, she's been living a different life for a while now. I think these tennis players are, in general, when you're like a teenager and basically thrust into society, into the world, traveling all over the place, like it's it's wild to fathom, but she seems to have... Um, a really good head on her shoulders and the game to match as well. I think the the maybe the the word of warning is like I said about Belinda Benjamin, like we've seen players start really hot or really break out and have a really unparalleled run of success for them at least in the early part of their career, only to kind of flame out when things get a bit tough. But I think we don't have to talk about that yet with Sviantec because we haven't reached it. And beyond Naomi Osaka, when we enter tournaments. I don't think it's a stretch to say she's in that that Halep territory, Simon. No, I don't think so either. And she she climbs to a career high of 15 as well. It's The ascent has been remarkable for her over the last year, and it's not going to be long. I mean, she's already a top 10 player in my books, even though the ranking doesn't illustrate that. She's clearly, clearly one of the 10 best players in the world. I don't think anyone can really deny that based upon her performances over the last four or five months. It's interesting that you bring up the comparison to Halep as well. I think she hits the ball a bit bigger than Simona Halep does as well. I think she's just a... They have the same same quality of clean ball striking, but I think Sviatek takes more risks perhaps and is is less defensively minded. And I think that's no insult to Simona Halep as well because she's an unbelievable athlete and someone who has navigated the perhaps slight physical limitations that she has as a player. But Sviatek has pretty much everything you want and it wouldn't it wouldn't shock me at some point in this year to see her ranked inside of the top five and I don't know how you don't consider her the favorite for the French Open given her performance from just a few months ago I mean defending champ you have to consider that just in general as we we leave this tournament Simon going to miss Australia of course and the fans and the fact that it did seem like an escape from reality as the tournament's kind of spread out all over the world and we see some fans in some places in Adelaide, pretty packed house, still a bit surreal, but kudos for Tennis Australia for pulling this off generally. I mean, it was definitely not perfect, but they made it out. Any closing thoughts about this tournament, Simon, before we move on? Um, maybe I'll just make a final point for Igish Biontech because I think it's one that is... It didn't get enough analysis in, in her trans- transition from playing on clay to the hard courts is that she still has a lot of work to do on her first serve. I think it's still probably the weakest part of her game in terms of 
just overall percentages. She was below 60% in this final first serves in. She is able to defend it a lot better on a clay court. And I think you have seen that and it's been her Achilles heel in terms of when she's lost on hard courts is that the serve has not necessarily broken down, but it's not as big enough as a weapon to... And she hasn't been able to figure out how to defend it in the same way that a lot of the big guns on the tour have. So I think that's one thing to watch over the next year is whether or not she's able to figure out how to navigate around that. Because I don't think it's ever going to be the biggest weapon that she has in her game. But the fact that she was able to navigate it here against... Uh, I mean, it was a decent run, right? It's not like she played anyone of massive stature. No disrespect to anyone that she played in this tournament. But it wasn't as though that she was doing a murderous row of players. I think her, the match against Daniel Collins was something that I was interested to see before Collins is unfortunately injured again. Like it's a litany of injuries that she's had over the last little while, which is you know disappointing to see for someone who had such an excellent run a couple of years ago at Grand Slam level. But yeah, it wasn't like yeah, it wasn't like she was playing against a litany of top ten players here. So I think she did the job that she was supposed to. But I'm still very curious to see how she looks on a hard court against really really top level opposition. And excited, I should say. Very excited. I mean, we saw Simona Halep handle the business when they played in Australia. It's something to see, like you mentioned, Simon. I think a match for this tournament, Jill Tetschman, Sevastova, madness. Look up the highlights for that. The one positive, Simon, about this final, benches being one-sided. It didn't matter how short or long the highlight pack was going to be. They had enough <laughs> in there where you got the gist. There was not enough key points to miss because there weren't many. It was total domination. For the Polish team, who we'll see, who we will see much more of in the future. Okay, Rafa Nadal is not playing in Rotterdam. He's not playing in Alcapulco. We know that he was dealing with a back injury that plagued him in Melbourne. He fell to Stefano Tsitsipas there. Now it's totally normal for Rafa Nadal to take time off. We've seen him do it many a years and gear up, especially for the clay court season, which is his bread and butter. But Simon, financial difficulties with the Mexican Open and the fact that they could not pay Nadal's $1 million appearance fee was rumored to be the main reason for Rafa not returning to Mexico this year. It lit off kind of a firestorm, which was a bit shocking to me, to be honest, because I thought everyone understood what was going on here. Like, are we this? Are we still playing this game? Or are we going to acknowledge the elephant in the room that these people literally are the lifeblood of the sport? Let me ask you a question. Is it been confirmed that Rafa Nadal's back injury is not from him being handed briefcases full of money? Um, is that the reason <laughs> no. why he why he was struggling so much? I think it's it's uh, from being driven over by the, the tournament organizers in this case, which I they were quick to come out and be like, no, 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 it wasn't money, it wasn't money, it was his back. When this uh, the official accounts and all, um, so the fee is rumored to be one million dollars, and I think Roger Federer is in that same territory, of course. No, but Djokovic, 1.57, 1.25 rumored appearance fees that these guys have been paid in the past. The thing with Nadal, his appearance fee would have been, I think, neck and neck with the entire prize package for the tournament in Mexico for both the men and women to fathom that. So we have with a batch off of the PTPA and Novak Djokovic trying to Robin Hood this thing seemingly or... if what he wants us to believe and then we have this as well where you have rafa basically being like unless you're gonna pay me i'm not coming it's an interesting spot we're in but again did we not know this was going on because 
I mean, Fed and Rafa and Novak have been doing this for ages. Players before them have been doing this, but I think the money has definitely increased tenfold. I mean, is this the spot that we talk about? John Isner's Maybe, yeah. th- th- uh, Twitter thread from this week, the accidentally left wing. Sort of, you know, when you get those <laughs> he fell into Twitter it. amalgamations of accident, accidentally based. <laughs> so let me read out the first tweet in in John Isner's, uh, let's call it rant. The ACP is a broken system. Players and tournaments as partners need to work together, but 60% cut and 80% champions cut in one of our biggest events that has TV, data sponsorship and newly approved gambling revenue intact isn't a partnership at all. Um, and so he's talking about the Miami Open uh, in a response to it. Um, I'll just follow up and, and read a little bit more from what he said. Uh, how about a true order to see how much tourneys are actually hurting and then the money formula after the event to reconcile. Amazing that we still don't have a lot of this for our big events. How does that make any sense? Uh, and then just to round it out. So players should take a 60% cut and 80% champions cut while the ATP executives keep full salaries, benefits and expenses account. Make that make sense. Seems just a little hy- hypocritical, don't you think? Now, uh, I don't know, I didn't think that my copy of Das Kapital made it to Mr. Isdert and his family. (laughs) Uh, I thought it was going to get stopped at the border, but I'm quite impressed that he managed to read it. I told you, I told you to FedEx it because you would know for sure it would get there. So I'm glad that you listened to me. The link here is that everything that, actually, another thing to point in here as well is that a bunch of stuff got quote-unquote leaked out of the camp from Craig Tiley this week in an expose that was written regarding the demands, quote-unquote, that Novak Djokovic made um, in that famous week when all the players were in hard quarantine as well. So there is competing ideologies and competing agendas about what the future of the sport looks like in terms of distribution of the wealth and the prize money and uh, the cuts on everything. And if we don't think this is the case on the WTA side, then I think we're extremely uh, misguided in that belief because it's very much is the case um, in terms of how the cuts are dillied out. But this is all mixed together. It's all part of the same package, which is there clearly needs to be something here. There needs to be some give in terms of how this money is distributed and how lower ranked players are receiving funds in this because if it's not now, I don't know when it's going to happen on the backdrop of COVID in terms of re- a reassessment and a rebalance of what the ATP and the WTA tour looks like. And exactly what John Isner is saying applies to this Mexican tournament situation in the sense that if if they if the books or if, if the financials of this tournament were widely known or transparent, we would have an idea if if this if this money to Nadal was coming at the expense of something else or if the, the situation if the situation was as bleak as the organizers had painted it and i think Eisner is not alone in requesting more transparency from tournament organizers which i think is one of the major hangups that still exists within this kind of rift that formed between the player council and and the offshoot of what the PTPA was or is trying to become so it's all tied together i just I think that what you also have is now this factional fandom thing where like people are ragging on Nadal for not showing up when, by God, the Fed and Novak are doing the exact same thing. And they've ex- used the exact same reason um, for not going to places as well. So I, I think you get so many dueling things, but the main, th- the main point is that I think John Isner, jo- Novak Djokovic, all of these people though we probably agree with them in such little ways. We probably do agree with them that the structure of the sport is broken. 
I think so. I, I think that's entirely true. And I've been racking my head all week on the backdrop of these tweets from Isna to think about where you would have appearance fees for tournaments in a different sport. Like in, in team sports, it's not necessarily the same thing, right? You're a contracted athlete. Um, in boxing, you're kind of it's kind of the same thing, but not really, right? Because you're dealing often in one-time fights and that is... Uh, closer to an appearance fee. I guess UFC has something similar, I believe, in terms of how yeah. the revenue is split in that regard. I think that's the model that a lot of people have pointed out that the the tennis authority should try and replicate in some capacity. Even though from reading through a couple of things, the UFC clearly seems broken in a number of ways as well. And one, actually, I think that stuck around in my head was the fact that, and bear with me here for our non-British listeners, but the snooker tour actually has a similar setup in terms of how appearance fees are actually quite a huge thing um, when you have effectively one player in the world that is head and shoulders above everyone else in terms of recognizability. In Ronnie O'Sullivan, the, the appearance fees that he often attracts from these tournaments is substantial and he kind of does make the tour go around. Uh, it's such a small sport on a global scale that it's interesting to note that I I saw the parallels between the two sports in those capacities. But can you explain the good faith argument to me, Devang, of why it's okay for Rafael Nadal to take a $1 million appearance fee here? I'm just curious to know what the, the devil's advocate is of why he's allowed to be able to do this. I will right after the break. Haha, it's the tease, but I have to do it for contractual reasons, so I will explain that. Plus, we'll get to Roger's return and preview the action in Rotterdam and Dubai coming up. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome back to the Open Era podcast. Simon, you asked me a very intriguing question. The good faith argument for why these appearance fees exist for the likes of Rafa, Serena, Roger, Novak. Um, I think it's because, and it's a pretty, it's a squishy argument because it, it's going to paint me into a, a, a corner of economic belief that I probably don't aligned with but I think the idea is that these people are such behemoths um, of an attraction that they will pull in enough people to make the whole thing worthwhile and a, and a worthwhile business uh, in terms of the experience as well as the bottom line for these organizers 
Is that is that a fair take? Yeah, I mean, we could sit and rip this one apart, but I was looking for the good faith argument and you've presented it to me. So I appreciate that. And let it never be said that we're a left wing podcast. <laughs> we, uh, cool. I, I think it's fair to rip it apart. It's totally fair. Like, I'm not saying I'm, I totally believe this, but I think it's fair to rip apart. No, no, let's 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 just leave it there for a second. Let's uh, let's pretend that we're a neoliberal podcast and we uh, we follow the logic of most of the world leaders and let's just let's just move on I think it's uh we have a lot of tennis to touch upon so uh we've we've done enough we've done enough communist propaganda over the last two years so here's the thing though the chances of the Acapulco event making the news or being covered the chances of that go up way more when Mr. Rafael Nadal is there simple as that so I think it's quite obvious what they're what they're trying to do with this. But um, yes, let's move on to another big capitalist returning to the tour. Roger Federer is coming back. He's coming back in Doha. Simon, he tweeted out um, with a bionic arm, which is very intriguing to me, along with his message that he was coming back. Maybe hinting that the rules have changed and we can expect a couple more slams, but... We're still a week or so away. I, I think we are on the record Fed fans, of course, but where's your feeling with him at? He's doing a bit more press as well in the lead up to his return. How are you feeling about this comeback right now? During when you were talking, I was thinking to myself, is Roger Federer a billionaire? So I quickly Googled it. Apparently he is. So he, I remember we talked about this, actually thinking about it, that he became a billionaire in, in 2020. Right. <laughs> Three other men in that club from the sporting world, Michael Jordan, Tiger Woods, and Floyd Mayweather. Didn't think Floyd Mayweather was a billionaire, but I guess they call him Floyd Money Mayweather for a reason, right? Of yeah. course. Anyway, moving on Moving on quickly from this. What is Fed going to look like? That's the really intriguing thing in terms of how where his game is at, because the last two times he's taken extended breaks from the tour, he's come back and dominated uh, in terms of his ability to win Grand Slams and put together runs. I think he has said himself that there are there were large stretches of his career where he was not able to rest. And you look at that bout with glandular fever back in 2011, question mark. Someone fact check me on that one. I think it's 2011 where the guy was still playing tournament events. Either he was contractually obligated or he had an appearance fee. And uh, he, indeed so, yeah. And he still turned up and played and perhaps his results were, were not good by the standards that he set. But... To all come around on that, I'm so fascinated to see because if he doesn't look any good through the first couple of months of coming back, then this is perhaps an indication that a 40-year-old body may not be lasting too much longer in this sport. Amongst these interviews, he was talking about how much he slept, which I thought was shocking. I think he sleeps 12 hours a day, which is... (laughs) That's some vampire stuff, Fed. But hey, if it works, it works. I chose to also having the money to be able to pay for all the childcare that that would take because he's got four <laughs> kids and all that jazz. So, I mean, hey, if we're going back to billionaire, uh, we just were with the billionaire <laughs> thing. I'm excited. I, I think uh, obviously the tour is better off when Fed is still around. But that, I think that that level of excitement is also mixed with a bit of trepidation just because of what you mentioned, Simon. Like if he doesn't. If he doesn't look like he looked when he came back in 2017, like it wouldn't be shocking. But I, in the back of my mind, I'm kind of hoping that that level is there. And I think over three sets, it should be, right? Like, I don't think the the taxing part might not come until uh, we get back to slam territory. But that is what we're looking forward to. We're also looking forward to Rotterdam, where it was supposed to be, 
a pretty action-packed field with some of the best of the best of the world. I think we're still getting that, but there's a bunch of injuries to consider, Simon. I think ton of cool cool matchups as well, but the one I'm probably most curious about for many reasons, Kaina Shikori, Felix Ajay Ali Asim. Two people that we didn't get a long glimpse of in Melbourne. I think for Nishikori, not surprising, but Kaina Shikori, every time he comes back because of his ranking, ends up playing someone he should not be playing this early. And it makes for a really weird situation where he can't really get a rhythm at all. And I, I wonder, Simon, if the challenger route might be a better option, but I think he's he's a bit stuck here. I think the same thing happened with Stan Wawrinka as well when he was coming back from the injuries he had in 2016, 2017 time and fell right down the rankings. It's interesting that both him and Nishikuri followed a similar path, right? That they tried to come back roughly at the same time. It's been mm-hmm. how many days? 10 days since Felix Oje Aliasim lost to Aslan Karatsev at the Australian Open. Can you still believe that that happened? I don't, I just, no. one of those things that you, you play it back in your mind and you just cannot believe that you saw that. It's remarkable. And over on the WTA side, Dubai, another, I think the first day alone has a ton of great action, but I wanted to kind of, before we move on to next week's preview, hit on the fact that Danny Medvedev can get to number two still somehow without winning the Australian Open like we we talked about last week but how he can do that involves how the ranking system is is set up and I think we're going to talk about that more next week with the guests that we have lined up but Simon they're talking about a rankings point freeze again I don't think it's gained that much steam but we're going to get very close now to a lot of players having their world turned upside down once these freezes come out of place and we'll see a massive upheaval, I think, for some players. You know, so I earned a higher amount of money at the start of the pandemic than I do now. Um, what I'm advocating for is that we do a a salary freeze um, from the start of the pandemic. Do you think that's a, a reasonable thing that we can ask for? Probably not. <laughs> Yes, indeed. Uh, the Medvedev thing is is fascinating, right? The, the fact that the way the ranking points have, have netted out and he's he's clearly got a fast track if he doesn't just completely and utterly defecate the bed uh, on clay the way that he has done in the past. He should be in line to be the world number one by the back end of the year. Not maybe back, back end of the year, but like at the end of the clay court season because he's literally defending nothing. I think he has like 120 points on clay the whole season. So... It's his, this is territory that we haven't seen in a very, very long time of players cracking the the top two um, that haven't been named either Federer, Nadal, Djokovic or Murray. I think it's, has it been 16 years since there was a player who was ranked number two who wasn't one of those players? So it's been a very, very long time. 2005. The big three, the big four are excellent for providing those jaw-dropping stats. And I think this one is one of those that hits home because it's also taking us back to basically a different time of tennis entirely. Danny Medvedev is in Rotterdam. He's the number one seed. Interesting cats hanging around, but I think that the, honestly, the truth that Andy Murray still stands here, but the truth is, Bush, how many people withdrew before this tournament even took place? And I think we talked about injuries last week, but this is, again, it's like... It's going to be touch and go a bit, I think, especially since we had this disjointed beginning to start the tennis tour uh, for this year. But to see so many players withdraw, it's a bit concerning. And it was 
a continuation of what we saw in Australia by the fact that everyone died at the back end of the tournament and continued to do so. It seems like it's a battle of wills to see who can get over the finish line in some of this. And I think it actually leads nicely into a discussion point that I was going to bring up for a parting shot in a few weeks' time, which is a... I think that this current season, we're going to see more first-time champions than we've seen in the history of tennis, or I guess more surprise champions at the lower-ranked events, at both the 1,000 and 500 and the 250 events than I think we've seen in probably 15 years on both the WTA and ATP side, because there are players who are being given opportunities to make deep runs here because either seeds are falling early or are injured. And... It's an interesting segue into the fact that Bublik made his second final of the year. He's a talented kid, don't get me wrong, but he's getting opportunities and making the most of them this year. Yeah, and Alexei Popperin winning his first title of his career. He's becoming the second first-time winner, and we're only in the beginning of March. So I think that's a great point. There's there's chances there. There's chances for someone like Felix to win a win a final against someone he should beat, which I think he will get that chance. I'm quite confident he will get that chance quite soon, but that is another storyline. Sorry, I misspoke earlier. It's not Dubai where the WTA is. It's Doha and Qatar. We'll talk about that in our parting shots. I mean, just to wrap up the ATP events this week, we talked about it briefly. Alexander Popperin, first title, beats Alexander Bublik, friend of the show. And we had a great file in Montpellier, Dev Goffin, who was really feeling it towards the end of 2020, not in a good place. Talked about the struggles he had in general in 2020. It was excellent to see him put in an absolutely monster effort to take out RBA Bush in the open to suit. It was, yeah. And Goffin being up and down really over the last year. And I think one of the people that's spoken openly about how difficult this pandemic has been in terms of just the mindset and his willingness to play. And I think that is a, a tease for our parting shots in terms of some of the comments that Gilles Simon has made this this week in terms of some of the interviews that he's done and some of his some of the things that he's announced. Um, in, as part of the Open Era Book Club, I'm going to take on reading Gilles <laughs> Simon's book as well, which I'm excited to get to. But RBA is another one, right? Like he's going to be a, a dude that he's going to be so consistent throughout this year on every single surface that would it shock you that Roberto, Roberto uh, Bautista Agu would not be in the top 10 by the end of the year? Is that not an unbelievable thing to say? No, I think just playing, playing and playing often is something that he does and consistently good to above good is definitely what you can expect from RBA. So no, I don't think it's a, a massive show. The thing is though, I think when you see in examples like we saw on Sunday in France, I think that that level, that next level, he doesn't have it. Like, and even David Goffin, who is, if he's playing well enough, he's not enough for them. I think that is something in the back of my mind where I look at RBA and I'm like, in that vacuum where there are going to be a lot of players missing, there are going to be maybe some not so talent laden draws that we're used to. He can definitely get some 250s and maybe even 500s. But I think if David Goffin and his ilk are still in this position to beat him. I'm not I'm not as high on him as you are, perhaps. Such slander to the Davigoff fans of the world. I'm I'm not having this. Uh it's interesting. It's interesting you're backing the banks uh, after the screens <laughs> that we've heard on this podcast previously. But I, I think for me it's also just uh let's get some new uh some new acronyms in here. Let's get some 
Alexandro Davidich Vokina in here. Let's get uh, <laughs> some Bartek Van Van de Zanschlup. Like we need some more um, we need some more acronyms in here. And though I love RBA and PCB and the rest of the Spanish banks, let's open it up. I think just secretly deep down, I just want to be able to play like Roberto Bautista Agu, just to be metronomic and to walk into any match that I play uh, ever, <laughs> probably the level that I'm ever going to get to, and just never miss a ball. <laughs> to be able to replicate or repeat the shots like that, right? Like the, the amount of drilling down it takes, it's mind-boggling. But it's interesting. I mean, it, it's worth considering, like, we all want to play the flashy style or perhaps the most aesthetically pleasing, but like on a day-to-day basis, like whose game would you want to have in your back pocket? Probably RBAs, right? <laughs> Probably. There you have it, the answer. I'm going to go with Tim Hedman because I, uh, I love the idea of serving and volleying at that age when Tim Hedman was a relevant force. You asked me that question and and I, I appreciate the fact that you've gone with Tim Henman, but I can't believe I've gone with RBA and not with Andre Agassi. So I just had to had to get a, a slight aside there. Far better answer. The reason I say Tim Henman as well is I think the idea that you didn't have to play points super long appealed to me as a kid on the lazier side who wanted to win points short uh, in short manner. Pete and Tim Henman, respect to those cats. Before I keep rambling on, anything else, Bush, from these ATP events and what we look forward to in Rotterdam? I think on the ATP side, it feels like a bit of a holding ground as we basically shift everyone over to the, to the dirt. Just one other thing to round out this segment. I want to just touch on one Manuel Sarandulo, uh, Argentinian, 19 years of age. It's his first ATP Tour level event. He's the world number 335. The last player to win his first main level draw event was Thiago Sebald Wield, who we chatted about last year on the show. Not been a great run of form since then, so don't want to, don't want to touch yeah, too much on Sarandulo here. I was hoping we wouldn't have to touch. Our boy Tiago fell off the face of the earth after our gushing episode about him. The curse lives, sir. It's kind of sad in it's kind of sad in some ways. I'm just gonna round out this segment when we started talking about Felix Ojealiasim that Juan Manuel Sarandulo is nineteen years of age and maybe he's gonna win his first ATP tour event before Felix is at his eighth attempt, which is kinda of sad, but yeah, that might be the case as of two PM this afternoon Pacific time, if he can get through the wily veteran, Albert Ramos Vanalas. Vinalas. Uh, Vanalas? Vinalas? Not sure. Vinalas, and I think it's justice that we end up. I would one. butcher a Spanish name. Yeah. <laughs> and it's a segment of butchering, and that we tarnish the Spanish banking system. One final bank boss for the Argentinian kid. That tournament, ton of young Argentinian kids looking really good. I mean, you don't know when you're going to return to this spot or if you'll ever be in this spot again. So hopefully he gets that done now because I think for Felix, the positive, as we've said many a time, he will get back into those situations where he can win. I think we've seen in the other flip side, the parody drivenness of what we what perhaps these tournaments could be. Get the titles now. Who cares? Who cares who they're against? Who cares who you had to, who you had to play? It's a title, right? So that's my take on that matter. When we come back to wrap up this episode of Open Era, it's our parting shots coming up. With 
Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome back to the Open Air Podcast. We conclude this week's show with our favorite segment, Powering Shots, where we can rant and rave about the things that have bothered us, store pleased us. In the week that was, Simon... We've had some stuff that we already talked about, frankly, during the show, but still a few more things to get to. Where do you want to start? Should we start with your Simone? Because it's a, it's both a sad and interesting story for everyone to sort of do their own research on. And I touched on the fact that the Open Air Book Club opens with its first recommendation, which is Joe Simone's book, This Sport That Drives You Crazy. It's interesting that the majority of autobiographies that come out about this sport are people talking about how much they absolutely friggin despise the yeah. thing that they're playing. Mm. <laughs> it's not perhaps a good look on the sport in general, but Shiosimon tweeting from February the 26th, um, with my heart no longer in traveling and playing in these conditions, I unfortunately feel the need to take a break to preserve myself mentally. Here's hoping the morale improves as fast as possible. Thank you to all of my friends for their support. Aviento. Um, I don't know why that came out Spanish. Uh, but uh, if that's a decent translation for my French, which is getting better, but still needs some work, obviously. So apologies if I bastardized that quote in any capacity. Apologies to the Simon family. So this is a sad story, isn't it? But it's one that we don't talk about enough, which is that this sport's brutal. It is utterly brutal. It's relentless. It is a tough slog through the whole year. You're expected to give everything to it. You're expected to turn up at a new city, a new place, a new camp and be playing your best the entire time. And you combine that with the fact that we're in the middle of a pandemic. You're away from your family for a long period of time. You're expected to quarantine. It is a brutal, brutal period of time to be a professional tennis player. It's well said. I think very illuminating. Andy Murray, who has been very open about a lot of things, said like he unfollowed a bunch of players on social media and didn't watch any of the Australian Open. He said he couldn't do it. He wanted to be there himself. It was a struggle for him to to watch the tournament daily or even just see stuff from, from these events. And I think Jill Simon has long been a pretty uh, hard on his sleeve kind of guy. And, and I know... His tennis style maybe doesn't draw the most fans because of its lack of high uh, high impact plays. But this is a guy who will tell you what's on his mind. And from talking about the pressures that were placed on him and and Songa and Richard Gasquet and the, those the Musketeers, the, the crew of Frenchmen who were expected to be on the the level of Fed and Nadal when they were coming up, to not being able to live up to that, to, to carving out a life as a basically part of a touring sideshow where you're playing tennis all over the world. Like, Jill Simon was a quote that you sought out. So I think him talking this frankly and him taking this time away, it's it's another reminder, like, unprecedented times. But normally, I think people weren't that open about this kind of stuff in the past before. So if there is more uh, recognition of this existing, I think that is a positive thing. And obviously, we wish Jill's well, I think. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the things... One of the quotes that I saw this week was specifically around the Roger Federer 40-15 scenario at Wimbledon in 2019 about how 
no one seems to talk about the fact that Federer hit his two best shots, his big first serve and a big forehand. It's just Novak played just exceptionally well to return it. And everyone always remembers the pressure points and not everything else that happened about the match. And tennis is such a fine margin in terms of your ability to win those very, very marginal points, those razor red points that you win. But the point that he was making is that match lasts five hours in a situation like that and you have plenty of opportunities to do it. And everyone's only going to remember that woman standing up with the one finger up, but not the rest of the whole match, which is, I think it's, which is true. It's, it's certainly how I remember it. Um, and going back and watching that match a couple of months ago, you kind of got the sense that there's tons of things in that match where both players had opportunities and they didn't capitalize on it. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, good read, good interview. Uh, seems like a really nice person as well. So Sad that he's stepping away from the sport, but good in the sense that he's going to be able to get himself right and maybe take another run at this if he wants to. Play some good video games too, if you've seen the tweet of what uh, what he's playing on PlayStation from a couple of years ago. Some good games you can trust in Shields. Simon, moving on to Big 3 BS, we can call it. It's part of the, I think, the the ecosystem that like, revolves kind of just beside tennis and it's the big three like life and everything about it and of course Novak wins so we get the Grand Slam chase an innocuous tweet from an account saying uh, when the big three retires who had the most Grand Slams Ben Rothenberger Times journalist saying Serena now this opened up to an abate, debate about five sets versus three sets and the fact that the big three have used come from behind wins to win a bunch of their slams a couple at least and if they remove that from the equation and they were only considered three three set uh, grand slam finals this would be the count so one more time remove all of the times that fed nadal and Djokovic came back from two sets to one down to win a grand slam final because they would have lost in three sets correct so with this count where we would stand right now, Serena, of course, still on 23, but Fed on 18, Nadal on 18, Novak at 13. I by here declare that we should acknowledge that this is now the official count of the slams, Simon. How do you feel about this? Seems seems reasonable to me, doesn't it? I think also Ben Rothenberg, um, despite his many flaws, made some very valid points in the thread that continued from this, which is that so often the line gets trotted out that it's across five sets and the overriding thing is just physicality or uh, like the physical requirement, the stamina required to go across five sets. And no one ever talks about the complete opposite side of that, which is that the sport requires immense mental preparation and you have to be on it from dip, from point one inside of three sets. And the we sort of prioritize in some of these actually that's not that's i'm going to back back up on that one there are certainly segments of the tennis audience that believe that physicality and stamina above everything else are the defining traits of what makes a, a great of what is the, the the pinnacle of what a sporting athlete should be in tennis and i think the opposite argument almost never gets trotted out which is that it takes an immense amount of preparation and to to be able to be there from ball one. And I think Rothenberg used the example of it's the equivalent to go between 100 meters and a 1500 race. Like you would never argue that one athlete is better than the other. Like you would never argue that, um, who's a world champion of 1500 meters? 
Is that El Garouge? No, El Garouge Marathon, right? This is the other guy. HM El Garouge, yeah. It is HM, HM El yeah. was one of them, 10,000 meters, I believe. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. you wouldn't argue that HM El Garouge is a worse athlete than Usain Bolt, right? Like, the, 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 they're both incredible. In fact, you could probably argue that HM El Garouge is the greatest Olympian of all time, but that's a different story. You've now just argued against yourself in, in now this little uh, <laughs> this hole that you just dug into. And I think that the biggest, the, the room for error is it's more... I think I back the most from Ben's argument is the fact that that room for error is expanded. And no matter how bad you can get, like we saw from Novak, like Taylor Fritz was playing him off the court for a time in a five-set match, a lot more room for error. Like if you completely lose it or if it's an injury or something else, you have a lot of time in these five-setters to find your way. And I think that that room, um, that margin is not there. For Serena, so I thought that was an excellent point. Moving on to Andy Roddick, who, again, in this in this topsy turvy world, where don't judge a book by its cover, I would never have expected Simon in 2021 to be talking about Andy Roddick in terms of his not his activism, but se- simply being on the right side of the ledger in terms of not being a jackass in the wider society. And I think we saw him dunk. On Ted Cruz, which I mean, it's a cottage industry and it's not really helping anyone at this point now. And we all know Ted Cruz is an awful man. But I think Andy Mer- Andy Roddy getting this, this Duncan regarding Ted Cruz being angry that his friends leaked his group text about his Cancun trip. Andy Roddick with the dagger saying, quote, him telling someone not to be an asshole is like me telling someone not to lose Wimbledon finals. That's it's class. It's an ace, Simon. It's an ace. Mm-hmm. It is. It's it's terrific. Ted Cruz have a mullet? Is that what I've been seeing recently? He's a very round man anyway. A little bit. A little bit. I think he's got like some of the new, the 21st century haircut styles mixed in with some of the more archaic uh, styles. But he's a heinous man, I think is is confirmed. And I think what we're seeing now is he can experiment all he wants with his hair. Because now everyone is just focused on hating him as a person, right? So it's... It's wonderful because you'll carve out a wonderful career doing this, right, Simon? Because it's very lucrative to be um, extremely hated, as we've seen in society. Yeah, I mean, we could go on about this for hours, but I think in a lot of ways they're they're actors, aren't they? They're playing a playing a character. It's almost like being a pantomime villain, but it's also just being very lucrative to play to your audience. Um, Yeah, I find him very desperate. I think that's the adjective that I would use to describe Ted Cruz: a very desperate man, like a. A very sensitive, desperate man, I think is the way that I would uh, describe him. A snowflake, if you will. Tune in next week when we compare each senator to their tennis player equivalent on the Open Air Podcast <laughs> as we continue to cross over. Anything else, Bush? Anything else we missed? Yeah, I've got a couple of things that I just wanted to touch upon. Um, one of the things that I would challenge any of our listeners to make is the Open Air Bingo game, um, because we almost made it through an episode without Devang talking about uh, one Taylor Fritz, uh, you could happily go and take your it's shot. True. I think it's true. Taylor Fritz is one finger, as they say. You know what? I, in the back of my mind, I'm like, I need to get Fritzy in here, but it, it's, did he call on it like this? So I'm going to follow up that tradition as well with two of my own from the Open Era bingo game. I was sad to see that Yannick Sinner withdrew from Rotterdam due to a back injury because that back injury is slightly concerning, just given that he's 19 years of age and is suffering with that at, at this stage of his career. Also, I was really excited to see his draw um, because I really wanted to just watch him play to see his development. So that's another finger. So everyone's slightly tipsy at this point from taking shots of whiskey. 
And let's round this out with one more within the Open Era bingo game. Did you see what Uniqlo has decided to put Roger Federer in for his return at Doha? Oh, God. It is horrendous, disgraceful. I pro- I'm going to review. I have not looked at it yet, but I'm going to look at it now live on air and react to it um, <laughs> as I see it first. I So people have sent me just messages with no te- uh, no image just being like, can you believe this? Okay, here it is loading. Let's see it. Look at these websites. The Qatar. Oh my God. The hospital green. They went back to the hospital green. Get him out of these. Oh. Do you think this is a homage to first line workers that they're going to try and put him in scrubs? <laughs> they might be better off spinning that. Uh, I fair. I could have sworn we've seen that color scheme before. Oh, that's sad. I don't like. It. It's better than the UPS thing from the French Open a couple of years ago. But Uniqlo is. It's tough though, right? Because they they are all about the base colors and the block colors. So it's very limited. I feel like I'm quite a fan. I have to say of of Gen Z fashion. It's a bit like you know someone covers their eyes to temporarily blind themselves and goes into a thrift store and picks out like five things and then puts it on. Jesus. That's wow. the best way I'd describe it. But These are our target market. Our target market are the people who are flaming right now with their, their incendiary takes. Are you sure about this, man? You want to challenge this? This is from someone who still wears skinny jeans at the age of 32 and, you know, wore band t-shirts and guy liner at some point in his teenage years. So I'm not sure I can be... And, you know, uh, a uh, an authority on what is good fashion at any point. But it's, I would take some of that stuff over this trash that Uniqlo is dumping out for Roger Federer. This is the greatest player of all time on the men's side. And you're deciding to dress him like um, a ice lolly in the middle of sun, in the middle of the summer. And let me say this, Lacoste clearly treats Snowback well. Like I, I'm not totally down with what he's putting out there fashion-wise, but he likes it and it seems unique enough. And I think Rafa's colors are cool. Like the color scheme, it pops. I'm not quite liking this with what I'm seeing from Fed, but I don't know. If they can spin this into the Frontline Workers tribute, which they probably should, then it might be a safe <laughs> job. Oh man, that would be such a such a thing if they made an outfit that was actually in the style of some scrubs. <laughs> scrubs. There's a dollar to be made. Don't put it past anyone. Okay. All right. On that bombshell, we conclude this week's episode of Open Era. A reminder, we are on Patreon.com. Join us there to get this episode's ad free, as well as on join us on the Discord where we're chatting tennis a lot of the time as Doers are happening at all hours of the day. We are on twitter.com forward slash open pod. Inching towards 400 there. We'll probably do a giveaway once we hit 400 followers. So hit us up on Twitter as well. For producer Nick on the ones and twos, for Simon and for myself, thank you so much for listening to Open Era. We'll talk to you next week. Mm-hmm.